Good morning. Our sermon text is not going to be nearly as long as that Old Testament reading. We will be actually dealing with Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. When you look at verses 6 through the end of the chapter, you're going to be actually looking at what are called commonly the four woe or judgment or cursing passages in Habakkuk. And we are not going to get to that today. What we are going to be looking at is verses 1 through 5, which we have entitled today, The Faithful Will Be Rewarded. So if you'll turn with me in your scriptures to Habakkuk, we'll be looking at verse 2 and we will read our text today. Starting at verse 1 and going through verse 5. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch and see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Then the Lord answered me and said, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It is hastened toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come, it will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Furthermore, the wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and, like, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers himself all nations and collects to himself all people let us pray gracious heavenly father we need the holy spirit to illumine our eyes to understand this text help us father to be a greater father worshiper of you by knowing more about you and father seeking to do the will that you have placed in our lives help us not to see this passage as so distant from us but that you are speaking to your people today. Let us heed your instruction and run according to your will. It is in Jesus Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. Before we get to this, we actually had come from a long discourse uh, from the passage in chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. And this is a three-step, almost dialogue between God and the prophet. Initially, the prophet complains to God. What is wrong with your people in Israel? Why aren't they doing what they're supposed to be doing? And God quickly responds, you have no idea what I'm doing in this age. In fact, I am currently in the process of fixing that problem. And he says, I'm going to send the Chaldeans over there and they're going to correct these people and they're going to make everything right. This disturbs the prophet. In verse 12, he says, you are from everlasting and everlasting you will not die. He says, you have appointed them to judge. He said in verse 14, but why have you made these people who are wicked to come after people that are more righteous than they? The Chaldeans bring them all up with a hook. And he actually describes the Chaldeans as a people that throw a net over the people and they just gather them all up. The good, the bad, doesn't matter. They just take all peoples to themselves and they don't care. They just ruthlessly grab. He's expecting a response from God. 
And that's where we start our passage today. And when I consider this passage where it begins, I consider sometimes my own life, especially as a young teenager, probably a little bit less than a young teenager. I did have a hands-on mother who was not afraid to discipline me, and she was quick to use her own hand in correction. But if something was serious enough, she would say, your dad is going to be coming home. And when he does, I'm going to tell him what you have done. And then you got hours before dad comes home. Dad's not right around the corner, so you have a long time to think about what's going to go down when dad gets home. And sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's really bad, sometimes it's not as bad as you thought. Either way, you have time of contemplation of how this is going to go. This is the prophet at the beginning of our passage. He has, in a sense, called into question what God is doing. And he is waiting for God to reply. But he's anxious in that waiting. He's wondering, what's going to happen? What is he going to do? What are we going to do about the situation? And he sees himself as the one standing between the wrath of God and the people of Israel. He sees himself in this role, and and this is kind of the role of the prophet as, as the mediator, the one who goes to God on behalf of God's people. So he takes upon himself this role, and we see that we're going to be looking at three positions of a faithful prophet. Three positions of a faithful prophet in this text. And the title of this text is the faithful will be rewarded. The faithful will be rewarded. First, the faithful prophet waits and hopes in the Lord's reply. And we see that in verse 1. And it says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. I want you to see here that the prophet stands with patience. He had just said some things to him. God had told him that the Chaldeans, a people that he knew to be a wicked and pagan people, to come and correct the nation of Israel, who he himself said there's some problems. But when God gave him the solution, his response is, that's not a solution at all. I mean, that's like shooting a bazooka at a bee. What are you doing? They need help. They don't need this. But he did say, I'm going to go on the rampart. I'm going to go to the towers of the city and I'm going to wait. First of all, I want you to see that he separates himself from the people. He actually goes away and puts himself in a closer proximity to God and actually waits for the reply of God. We think about this impatience. We, we are very slow in our patience to wait for God's response. I mean, the answers that God gives us are not always right around the corner, and it scares us because when we're worried about something, when we're concerned about 
the people that we love, the people that we care about, the last thing we want to hear is be still and wait upon the Lord. But that's almost the first thing that he always says. Know that I'm going to take care of it. To you, I ask for patience and faith. And the prophet here is, is ready to wait. He's ready to wait. I also want you to see in this prophet something that's different from another prophet that I'm going to mention to you. Jonah. Who's Jonah? And we're going we're to mention a small portion of the passage just to give you some idea. It's only four chapters, so if you want to go by after today or this evening, you can read through it in about an hour or less and get the gist of the book. But I want to get, see that Jonah was the prophet that was sent to give a message to a people that he didn't care about. And he refused to go. And God had to bring him back to it. This is a prophet that loves the people that he's going to and doesn't want to give them the message that God has gave him to give to them. I want you to think about that. Because Habakkuk is like he is because of the compassion that he has for the people. Do you remember why Jonah didn't want to go and give the message? We're going to turn to Jonah chapter 4, and we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 3 primarily, just to give you an idea of what was said here. Now Jonah just came and preached the message that he was told to preach in Nineveh. Nineveh the enemy of Israel, who had tortured and who had humiliated and had hurt their army in combat. And Jonah was well aware of their reputation. He went to them and preached them one message, and that message was, in 40 days, you will be destroyed. Judgment is coming upon you, and the Lord is coming down in 40 days. That's all he said. Starting at chapter 4, it says, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was it not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better than life. He's saying this because after that message, you will be destroyed in 40 days, the entire nation repented. And I mean, from the king down to the servants, even their animals repented in sackcloth and ashes. And God relented concerning the judgment that was pronounced to them. Jonah's mad because he knew if he pre preached judgment that God was going to relent. Here's the correlation I'm making here. Habakkuk is called to preach a message of judgment, and he's worried. Why is he worried? Because he doesn't see repentance coming from Israel. 
Why is he concerned? Jonah went to preach a message. Judgment is coming and you're going to die. And he didn't want to preach it because he knew God would relent and save those people. God was too gracious for Jonah. But for Habakkuk, Habakkuk's worried the people won't repent. And judgment's going to come. He's worried about the message because he doesn't see repentance in the heart of Israel. But he's compassionate about the people. He cares about the people that he's called to minister to. He's concerned about Israel. But wasn't it Habakkuk that called out initially and said, your people need correction. There's no justice in this place. Everyone's taking a bribe. No one's doing the right thing. Even the people trying to do the right thing are being shut down. Everything's going wrong here. God, do something. That's how the book started. And now he's like, these people are so good. Why are you singing the Chaldeans? I mean, he's put on the rose-colored glasses completely here. It is partly because of the compassion of Habakkuk towards his people. Towards the people he's ministering to. He cares about them. He loves them. But the bigger issue with Habakkuk, if you go back in the passage to verses, chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, is not that all the people will be corrected. It's that they're going to take, they're just going to throw a cast net. They're just going to take them all up. They're going to take the faithful with the unfaithful. So you're bringing correction to everyone because most of them are bad. Is that what you're doing, God? Because I don't, I, I, I don't like how that sounds. You're bringing correction to the mass because a lot of them are bad. But what about the faithful? And you're saying, where do, you, where do you get that from? And it says here, and I will keep watch and see what he will speak to me. Look at this next passage. I want you to look close here. It's the verse 1b. And how I may reply when I am reproved. He's expecting God to correct him. And he is sitting in silence away from the people, close to God, so that he can know how to answer God and how to minister to these people that are faithful. He's looking for the answer. And what the answer he's looking for is, what are you going to do with the faithful people? Yes, there are people that need correction. But there are faithful people here. What are you going to do with the faithful? I want to say here that he has an attention to detail. He realizes that he has made a statement about God's response as something that he has got to take upon himself. That he will wait and he'll reply. And he'll reply. He will keep watch. He will sit there and see 
how he can still be the prophet to his people and still do what God has called him to do. The God that he knows is gracious and loving. He says that in chapter 1. He says that in verse 12. So he knows who he's dealing with. Second, the faithful prophet knows the word of the Lord is certain. Is certain. And we see this in verses 2 and 3. And the Lord speaks to the prophet. The Lord answers me and said, Record the vision, inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. It will certainly come, and it will not delay. We're going to talk about some things there. The faithful prophet knows the word of the Lord is certain. He's telling him here, the prophecy I have given you is ironclad. Write it on tablets so all may be able to read it. No matter who they are, no matter where they are, write it down so they know this is coming to pass. This is not something that's going to blow over. This is something that is going to come into this nation. Write it down and be sure of it. There are many passages that we could go to to speak on this. One of my favorite is Psalm 119. Look at verse 89 and 91. Through 91, it says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances. For all things are your servants. God's not pronouncing things and hoping that they work out. That's not how God operates. God announces things and he knows they'll work out because they are under his sovereign rule. God doesn't pronounce suggestions. God doesn't pronounce 50-50. When he says something and he determines that it's going to take place, there is nothing on earth or outside of earth that can thwart it. It cannot be stopped. And that's what he's telling the prophet. Write this down with a pen on tablets. So large that everyone could see it. So clear that they can't deny it. It will happen. We see this in our own day. Habakkuk is talking about a specific prophecy about the exile, but this is no less true than the scriptures to us today. God has given them to us, 
and a pin of iron with a diamond point, they will come to pass. And yet so many today believe that, hey, it hasn't happened yet. It must not, eh, maybe God was wrong. Maybe they just, they didn't get it right. Maybe they didn't know. Maybe they thought they knew. Even at this time, it calls for faith. <laughs> it calls for faith. It says, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. It hastens towards its goal, and it will not fail. What does that mean? That means it's coming. Even if you don't see it coming, it's coming. And even, you, even because you don't see it coming, don't mean it's not coming. It is coming, even though you don't see it. And he goes on, and he says, Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come, and it will not delay. He's telling the prophet this, and the prophet sees, what the prophet sees is problems in his own nation. He actually doesn't see an army surrounding the nation. He doesn't see the armies coming to the borders of, of his country. He doesn't even see that on the horizon. But God tells him it's coming. And to write it down and to be sure of it. This is where faith meets the reality of prophecy. He says, though it tarries, wait for it, and it will certainly come. It will not delay. Now, I don't know what you think is a contradictory statement or what is not a contradictory statement. I'll tell you that most people see this as a contradictory statement. This is a paradoxical statement. This is a statement speaking in two different perspectives. You see, for the prophet, this isn't coming immediately. So it says, though it tarries, though it takes time, though it's not coming immediately, wait for it. And then it says, for it will certainly come, and it will not delay. You can render that. Though it tarries, wait for it, and it will not tarry. Because the understanding's the same. But here's the difference. One is the perspective of the prophet, and the other is the perspective of God. Think of the dialogue we have here. We have a dialogue between the prophet and God. For God, nothing is in delay. Everything comes exactly when it's supposed to come. Everything comes exactly when it's appointed. But think of this in our life. Me and my wife were just having a discussion this morning. <laughs> and she hates when I talk about our conversations. We pray and we expect things to happen in our time when we want. But God has a timetable for these things. I'm not perfect. I'm certain that 
None of us are perfect in this room. But God tells us to walk by faith. And what that means is not, I say it and I get up and it's done. It does happen that way sometimes. But if you think it always happens like that, that's not a walk by faith. That's a walk by sight. It says in Hebrew 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please God. He is not in the business of growing our sight, but growing our faithfulness. And that tends to be God doing things in his timetable according to his will, but through your prayer. Hear what I'm saying. God is answering prayer, but not according to your will and not according to your time frame. It's the same here with the prophet. The prophet wants answers. And God says answers are coming. But they're coming when I'm ready to give them. So we see that the, the faithful prophet waits and hopes for the Lord's reply. He has heard the Lord and he knows that the word of the Lord is certain. Third, the faithful prophet is assured of relief to the people of faith. And we see this in verses 4 and 5. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home he enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. The word there says haughty man, but if you go into the original language, the subject there is left out. You'll see some commentators, they'll put in the oppressor or the conqueror. There's a lot of terms that are put in there. The, the, the way of establishing this should just be the evil one. Or the one that sins, the sinful one. And I think it was left this way on purpose. Some people say, uh, when I say some people, O. Palmer Robinson, who writes a commentary on this, says, so does uh, James Montgomery Boyce, says something like, this could be pointing to the Babylonian Empire, and it very well could be. But I think the reason why that name was not put in there, because it does not speak exclusively of the Babylonian Empire. When it's talking about the haughty one, it is talking about the enemy that's coming against the Lord's people, but it's also talking about the enemy within the Lord's people. Hear what I'm saying. Israel was a mixed bag. It was a mixture of the righteous with the unrighteous. It was a mixture of those who were circumcised and those who were uncircumcised, at least in the heart. Not all who calls themselves Israel are Israel. And so when he's talking here, he's not speaking specifically of any one people, but all people that are against God. I want you to see what it says here. It says the proud soul is not right 
it's broken. There's a fundamental problem with the proud one, with the one that takes pride in all things. We see this in James 4, verses 5 and 6. It says, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose, that he, he, meaning God, jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives us greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Opposed to the proud. A way of saying that is God makes himself an enemy of the proud. But he gives grace to those who are humble. And that's why this scripture specifically says the soul is not right in the proud man. Because the proud man believes that all these things are accomplished because of him. Because of his power. Because of his ability. Because of his know-how. Because of his knowledge. Because of his charismatic speech Whatever it is, it comes from him. I've heard people say things like this. I have accomplished all these things in my life. What can God offer me? How foolish is the man that does not recognize the gifts given to him. You're taking pride in something that does not even belong to you. I've heard people say, I worked hard doing this. I I spent my time. I I was here. I was going to this place and that place. You don't know how much effort I put in. I looked at that man. I said, I'll tell you this. I spent mission trips in Haiti. And I've seen people that will work harder than you. And they will study harder than you. And guess what? That's just not their situation. You want to talk about grace? God has given you grace. And what have you done with it? Except turn it into an idol. Make it a stand for a place of your preaching. Saying, look at what I have done. You fool. You've done nothing. Except turn God's gifts into a reason for your idolatry. The proud man is not right within him. The proud man, and we see this in verse 5, where it, it uses a synonym. It says the haughty man does not stay at home. What does that mean? It means he's not content at the things that were given to him. He does not stay at home. He he searches out for other things. And when I mean other things, I mean other people's riches. I mean other people's possessions. I mean other people's everything. Food, clothing, shelter. I'm not saying that it's wrong to be ambitious. I am saying it's wrong to be ambitious in a way that turns it into zeal for your friend's stuff. It's not wrong to say, I'm going to work hard. I want that vehicle in a few years. It's wrong to say, my neighbor has that vehicle. Why don't I have it? 
don't stay at home. You don't, it's not about being happy with what the Lord has given you. And, and let me assure you, we all have reasons to be grateful for what the Lord has given us. And if we don't think we do, we have a poor vision of what our life truly is like. It doesn't matter where you are in life. God has given you more grace than you deserve. That's true. The proud soul is not right. The proud soul does not stay at home. And the proud soul is never satisfied. Here's the bigger problem. Not only do you want this and want that and want the other thing, it won't ever be enough. They're never satisfied. It's like Sheol. It keeps on coming and it never will end because they're not happy. Nothing brings happiness. All it brings is a vacuum. I need more. I need more. I need more. And the more you get, the more you need. The proud man is never satisfied. It's, it's, it's funny, when I think of this, I recall a few sayings. One that really sticks with me, because a lot of people know such a man, is there was a man named J.D. Rockefeller. And they had asked, I'll, I'll give you a good quote by him. I'm always tearing him down with this quote. But I'll, I'll give you a good quote by him. There was one time when he, he um, tied the million dollars. And this was 40 years, 50, 60 years ago. And they said, why would you ever tie a million dollars? And he said, well, if I would not have tied the first dime to the first dollar I made, I would never have tied the million dollars. But the truth is, I believe that 10% of everything should go to the Lord first. That is a good quote, but I hope you take that home. J.D. Rockefeller said that. Um, I, I hope he is a man of God, but this next quote doesn't leave him in very good light. He also said this. Someone asked him, how much is enough money for you, J.D. Rockefeller? And he said, the next million. Not another million. <clears throat> the next million. Because it's not about getting one more. It's about always having one more than the next person. I would say that J.D. Rockefeller probably died a very sad man, although he was a very rich man, the richest man alive at the time. But he never seen himself as someone who had arrived he always saw himself as someone that was trying to get there. Why? Because he wasn't satisfied. It kept coming. He kept needing. He kept wanting. Proud soul is not right. It does not stay at home. It is never satisfied. But the B part of verse 4 is, but the righteous will live by his faith. I just want to take some time on this passage. A, because it's a very important passage historically. And I do see people. <laughs> anyway, Martin Luther said this was the passage that took him out of the bondage 
of the God that was oppressive and mean and entered into him the holy gates of heaven and he saw grace flow into his heart because of this passage. This passage is also quoted from where Martin Luther originally quoted it from, Romans 1.17. It says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. The actual passage says the, the righteous will live by faith. It's not a subjunctive in the Hebrew. What does that mean? That means those who are righteous will live according to their righteousness. Well, who are righteous? Those whom, the God, whom God has appointed to be righteous. Those who are truly of the Father will live for the Father. This is the way it has always been. What are you telling me? That I need to be of some secret organization? I need to be some part of some secret group? No. I'm telling you to have faith in Christ. Trust in him alone to be your savior because he is the only savior. And if you put your faith there, you will never be disappointed. If you put your faith anywhere else, you will never be satisfied. John Calvin wrote this about this verse. It follows, but the just shall live by faith. The prophet, I have no doubt, does here place faith in opposition to all the defenses by which, he, which men so blind themselves to the neglect of God and seek no aid from him. As men, therefore, rely on what the earth affords, depending on their fallacious supports, the prophet here ascribes the life, life to faith. But faith, as is well known, is, as we shall presently show, more at large depends on God alone, that there may be life by faith. The prophet intimates that we must willingly give up all these defenses which one want to, disapp to disappoint to him who finds that he is derived of all protection. We live by his faith, provided he seeks in God alone what he wants, and leaving the world fixes his mind on heaven. I want you to grasp the major crux of what John Calvin is saying there. If you look to the world, you will never be satisfied. But if you look away from the world and look to God, you will never be disappointed. That's what John Calvin is saying in that passage. But know that that salvation only comes by faith and faith in this God. So let's think about the prophet today. He's called upon the people. What are you going to do about these people? He says, I'm going to bring the Chaldeans. But the righteous will live by their faith. Did that happen? I don't know. Read the book of Daniel. And you will see four righteous. But it did happen. Yes, 
the faithful were cared for in exile. Even when the enemy didn't want to care for them. God is faithful to his people. But realize that God was bringing this correction to purify his people. It's the same today. You will find people in church that do not know God, but they go because they've been told they should go. But that doesn't save you. Christ alone offers you salvation for what is your deepest need. And your deepest need is you're a sinner in need of reconciliation to a holy God. And the only one that can do that is Jesus Christ and faith in him and faith in him alone. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that your word is strong and it is mighty and it is eternal. Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts to receive the grace and kindness that you have offered to us in your son, Jesus Christ. Help us see, just as the prophet did, just as the prophet was announced, that by faith, your righteous ones are saved. Help us, Father, to have a renewed faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.